0: I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the microbiology chapter of Crush Step 1. This is Mimi narrating part 4. In this part of the chapter, we'll discuss gram-positive acid-fast bacteria, gram-positive bacteria with no cell wall, and then begin our discussion of viruses. Let's get started with gram-positive acid-fast bacteria. Both mycobacterium and nocardia species are called acid-fast, though nocardia is weakly acid-fast because they resist decolorization by acid after staining with fusion. This is due to the high lipid content of their cell walls. Nocardia species were discussed earlier, and only Mycobacterium species are discussed here. Mycobacterium tuberculosis causes TB, a worldwide pandemic that kills 2 million people per year. In the US, It is seen mostly in older adults and immunocompromised patients such as those with AIDS, who lack the cellular immunity necessary to combat this bug. Although mycobacterium tuberculosis can infect any organ, it's famously associated with lung disease because it is usually acquired through inhalation. Next we'll talk about primary versus secondary tuberculosis, starting with primary tuberculosis. After inhalation, neutrophils and macrophages attempt to destroy the bacteria, but are unsuccessful because mycolic acid in its cell wall prevents phagocytosis. During this period of facultative intracellular growth, bacteria spread through lymph and blood. Cellular immunity then kicks in, and helper T-cells recruit macrophages to the site of infection in the lungs, resulting in local tissue destruction that looks like granular cheese and hence is called caseous necrosis. These granulomas often calcify, forming tubercles, see figure 528. Tubercles usually form in the lungs, a gonfocus, which you can see later, but can form anywhere in the body that the bacteria has managed to invade. At this point, the bacteria are contained, though still viable. Most patients are asymptomatic during primary infection. Children, older adults, and immunocompromised people can experience symptoms of a more overt infection. Symptoms include cough, sometimes with sputum or blood, and constitutional symptoms such as fever, chills, fatigue, night sweats, and weight loss. A purified protein derivative, or PPD test, will tell you whether the patient has developed immunity to mycobacterium tuberculosis. It is positive for active, latent, and past infections, demonstrating only the presence of a type 4 hypersensitivity, which is a cell-mediated response, to tuberculosis antigens. Active infections can only be diagnosed by demonstrating acid-fast bacteria in sputum. A subdermal injection of proteins is read 48 to 72 hours later, which is the latency time for a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. A 15 millimeter induration in duration indicates a positive test in a low-risk patient. It is 10 millimeters in moderate-risk individuals and 5 millimeters in the immunocompromised, to be positive. False positives can result if the patient recently had a BCG vaccine, and false negatives are seen with compromised immune systems, called ANergy, or if the patient was exposed to TB less than 10 weeks before the test. Another test is the interferon gamma release assay, which tests T cells in vitro to respond to bacterial antigens. This is more specific and is accurate in those with prior BCG vaccines. Radiologic findings in a patient who has recently experienced primary tuberculosis include calcified pulmonary lesions in the middle and lower lobes, which are called GON focuses, and HILAR lymphadenopathy. A GON focus plus HILAR lymphadenopathy is called a GON complex. Those who are experiencing symptomatic primary TB may show large cavitary lung lesions with air fluid levels. Next, let's talk about secondary or reactivation tuberculosis. Secondary TB usually occurs when a tubercle containing dormant bacteria weakens during an immunocompromised state. For example, HIV patients with a history of primary TB have a 10% chance per year of developing secondary TB. It can also occur with reinfection. Reactivation TB is usually pulmonary and presents with cough, sometimes bloody, fever, night sweats, and weight loss. The infection usually occurs in the apical areas of the lungs near the clavicles, because oxygen tension is highest, and tuberculosis is an obligate aerobe. As macrophages and T-cells fight to wall off the bacteria, lesions form that follow the same pattern as the lesions in primary TB. They caseate, which is the term for cheese-like, liquefy, which results in air fluid levels, and cavitate. Although pulmonary TB is most common, bacteria can spread from the lungs to other parts of the body, and tubercles in extrapulmonary sites can themselves reactivate. Hence, reactivation TB can take the following forms. Number 1, lymph node infection. It's the most common extrapulmonary site of reactivation and is usually in the cervical lymph nodes. This is also called scrofula and manifests as large matted lymph nodes. Number 2, Plural and pericardial infection presents as fluid in the pleural or pericardial space. Number three, kidney infection presents with red blood cells and white blood cells, but no bacteria in the urine. Because there are white blood cells but no bacteria, this is known as sterile pyuria. Number four, skeletal infection usually affects the spine, which is called Pott's disease. Number five, joint infection presents as chronic inflammation of one joint. Number six, CNS involvement presents as subacute meningitis and granulomas can be seen in the brain. And finally, number seven, miliary tuberculosis presents as seed-sized granulomas all over the body. In fact, seeding to the adrenal glands is a common cause of adrenal insufficiency worldwide. Several atypical species of Mycobacterium cause mild pneumonia. Mycobacterium avium intracellulare is a well-known opportunistic infection in AIDS patients with low T-cell counts, typically below 50. The bacteria spread, leading to a wasting illness involving multiple organs, although it is rarely the cause of death in these patients. Mycobacterium avium intracellulare also causes non-tender cervical lymphadenitis. Treat this by excising, not incising, the lymph node. Another species is Mycobacterium marinum, which causes fish tank bacillus, an ulcerative skin lesion in people who work with fish tanks. Mycobacterium leprae causes leprosy. The bacteria are transmitted through respiratory secretions or skin lesions of an infected individual, although it seems that not everyone is susceptible to infection for unknown reasons. The bacteria prefer to grow in the cooler body areas such as the skin, peripheral nerves, eyes, nose, and scrotum. Like Mycobacterium tuberculosis, Mycobacterium leprae is acid-fast and is a facultative intracellular organism, resisting destruction by macrophages using mycolic acid and dividing within them. Hence, the host must mount a cellular immune response with T-cells in order to destroy the bacteria. The severity of disease is dependent on the degree of this host response. Lepromatous leprosy is the most severe in which the host mounts no cellular immune response. Although the bacterium can be found everywhere in the body, the infection produces lesions mostly on the skin, such as hairless lumps and thickening, including leonine facies. See figure 529 for a photo. It also creates lesions on peripheral nerves in a stocking-glove distribution of sensory loss, which leads to repeated trauma, infections, and eventual deformities. In addition, it affects nasal cartilage, causing saddle-nose deformity, the testes, causing infertility, and the eyes, causing blindness. The next form is tuberculoid leprosy, which occurs when the host can mount an effective cell-mediated immune response. These patients generally have a self-limited, non-infectious, mild form of leprosy with some damage of peripheral nerves, one or two palpable nerves, sensory loss in those areas. The lesions are macules or flattened plaques without sensation. Other severities can be seen in between lepromatous and tuberculoid leprosy, such as borderline lepromatous, borderline, and borderline tuberculoid. The lepramine skin test, like a PPD, can be used to determine where the patient falls on this spectrum in order to determine prognosis. Other diagnostic tests include a skin and nerve biopsy, which shows granulomas in tuberculoid leprosy and acid-fast bacteria in lepromatous leprosy, or cultures in a mouse foot pad, which can't grow in vitro. Treatment is with dapsone and rifampin, adding clofamazine for lepromatous disease. Patients may develop a hypersensitivity to sudden destruction of the bacteria. Treat this with prednisone. Erythema nodosum leprosum may also present after starting treatment. This is an immunocomplex deposition in the skin. Treat this with thalidomide and don't stop treating for leprosy. Let's move on to our final section on bacteria, which discusses gram-positive bacteria with no-cell wall, specifically Mycoplasma pneumoniae and Ureoplasma ureoliticum. Mycoplasma species are tiny organisms without cell walls, so antibiotics targeting cell wall integrity like penicillin or cephalosporins are ineffective, whereas those attacking ribosomes, such as azithromycin and tetracycline, are effective. Mycoplasma pneumoniae is spread by respiratory droplets and causes tracheobronchitis and a mild walking or atypical pneumonia, with a slow onset of fever, malaise, sore throat, and dry-hacking cough mostly in young adults and teens. The organism binds to respiratory epithelia but does not invade, inhibiting ciliary motion and destroying mucosal cells. Radiographs may show a streaky infiltrate, and although most symptoms resolve in one week, the infiltrate and dry cough may persist for months. Infection can cause formation of anti-red blood cell antibodies, leading the blood to clump on ice. This is the cold agglutinin test and it causes anemia. Antibodies may form to other organ systems, leading to systemic symptoms like arthritis. Other diagnostic tests look for the presence of mycoplasma itself, such as PCR, a DNA probe, or sputum cultures that look like fried eggs grown on eaten auger. Treat with atypical coverage, which includes macrolides, tetracyclines, or quinolones. Next, ureaplasma ureoliticum is actually a species of mycoplasma, it is named ureoliticum because it cleaves urea into ammonia and carbon dioxide using the urease enzyme. It is a normal colonizer of the genitourinary tract, but can cause postpartum bacteremia in neonates. Congratulations, you've finished the section on bacteria. Next, let's move on to viruses, starting with an introduction. All viruses are composed of a core of nucleic acid, which is made of either DNA or RNA, covered by a protective protein coat or capsid. Viruses are classified into groups by number one, the type of nucleic acid that they use, number two, the shape of their capsid, and number three, the presence or absence of an outer membrane called an envelope. The envelope present on some viruses, is derived from the host cell's plasma or nuclear membrane, as the virus' progeny buds outward for release. Compared with naked viruses, enveloped viruses are more sensitive to inactivation or destruction by heat, drying, and detergents. Naked viruses are often transmitted by outside environmental exposure routes, such as fecal-oral, whereas enveloped viruses are often transmitted by direct contact routes, such as blood or respiratory secretions. In terms of replication, all viruses undergo these same general steps to replicate. Number one, attachment to specific host cell receptors. The specific receptors a virus can bind determine what type of cell can become infected. This is called tropism. Number two, penetration using receptor mediated endocytosis, coated pits, or fusion of the viral envelope to the host cell membrane. Number three, Uncoding or release of the viral nucleic acid. Number four, replication. This starts with early mRNA and protein synthesis, including proteins that shut off host cell functions and proteins that replicate the viral genome. Followed by replication of the viral genome from the template. Followed by late mRNA and protein synthesis, including structural and capsid proteins. Number five, assembly of the new viral particles within capsids. Number six: Release from the host cell via lysis, which causes the host cell to die, or budding, which leaves the host cell alive. General principles: All DNA viruses are double-stranded DNA, except for parvovirus, which is single-stranded DNA. The DNA viruses can be remembered by the mnemonic "Happy: Hepadna, Herpes, Adeno, Pox, Parvo, and Papova." All DNA viruses have linear genomes except for papillomavirus, polyomavirus, and hepadnavirus, which are circular genomes. All DNA viruses replicate in the nucleus and are icosahedral except for poxviruses, which replicate in the cytoplasm and have a complex shape. All RNA viruses replicate in the cytoplasm except for retroviruses and the influenza virus, which replicate in the nucleus. All RNA viruses are single-stranded RNA except for rheoviruses, which are double-stranded RNA. And finally, all viruses are haploid, which means they have one copy of DNA or RNA, except for retroviruses, which are diploid, which consists of two identical single-stranded RNAs. Let's begin our discussion of DNA viruses by starting with herpes viruses. They have icosahedral capsids. They are enveloped have a double-stranded linear DNA structure and have several viruses of clinical significance. Cytomegalovirus, herpes simplex viruses 1 and 2, Epstein-Barr virus, varicella zoster virus, roseolovirus, and kaposi sarcoma-associated herpes virus. Let's talk about some of these in more detail. The first is cytomegalovirus. Cytomegalovirus, also called CMV or HHE5, is transmitted through close contact, such as bodily fluid and organ transplant or through the placenta, and infects a variety of cells. Unlike other herpes viruses that affect the skin, CMV causes visceral disease. Most infections, 80%, but not all, are asymptomatic. CNV is one of the torches infections, which is a mnemonic for infections that cross the placenta. Congenital CMV occurs in mothers with a primary CMV infection. Fetal infection with CMV causes microcephaly, sensorineural deafness, seizures, hepatomegaly, purpuric rash, also called a blueberry muffin rash, and other birth defects. It is the leading viral cause of intellectual disability. Look for intracranial calcifications that line the ventricles. You can remember CMV as coat my ventricles. It typically causes a mononucleosis-like disease, which has flu symptoms with abnormal lymphocytes. AIDS patients with low T-cell counts develop CMV retinitis, colitis, and viremia. Treat CMV retinitis with ganciclovir. Bone marrow transplant recipients develop CMV pneumonitis, esophagitis, colitis, and viremia, but not retinitis. Help with diagnosis can be accomplished by observing tissues or urine for giant cells, called megalocytes, with owl's eye intranuclear inclusion bodies. For a microscopic image, see figure 530. Culture of the buffy coat, which is the white blood cell portion of blood, is confirmatory. In cases of mononucleosis-like symptoms, there should be a negative monospot test. Next, herpes simplex virus. HSV1 and HSV2 are transmitted by direct contact of mucocutaneous surfaces. Let's talk about primary versus secondary infection. In primary infection, initial contact can lead to formation of multiple vesicular or fluid-filled lesions with an erythematous base at the site of inoculation, which could be the skin, oral mucosa which causes gingivostomatitis, genitals, eyes which causes keratoconjunctivitis. See figure 531 as well as systemic symptoms like fever and malaise. However, most primary infections are asymptomatic. Next, reactivation infection or secondary infection. The virus lives in the latent state in neural ganglia and reactivates under conditions of immune suppression or stress, leading to a few vesicular lesions at the site of the primary infection, usually without systemic symptoms. Herpes labialis, which causes cold sores, see figure 532, and genital herpes are common reactivation infections, but recurrent gingivostomatitis and keratoconjunctivitis, which is a common cause of blindness in the United States, are also possible. HSV1 typically prefers oral mucosa, whereas HSV2 prefers the genitals, but both viruses can infect both anatomic areas. Special clinical situations include the following. Because HSV crosses the placenta, it is one of the torches infections. Specifically, fetal infection with HSV can lead to birth defects, intrauterine death, or neonatal encephalitis, typically in the case of HSV2. HSV can infect the cornea, which causes keratoconjunctivitis, which presents with a painful red eye. Fluorescent staining will show a branching dendritic ulceration that is vision-threatening. Immunocompromised patients may experience more disseminated infections, either with extensive mucocutaneous lesions or infection of other organ systems, such as the liver, lungs, and GI tract. Occasionally, HSV-1 may cause encephalitis that usually starts in the temporal lobe. It is the most common viral cause of encephalitis in the United States, and it's treatable, so don't miss it. Patients often present with altered mental status, behavioral changes, focal neurologic signs, and evidence of temporal lobe seizures, such as behavioral changes, smelling rubber, etc. EEG and MRI can be diagnostic, as well as PCR of the spinal fluid. Herpetic Whitlow is an infection of a finger by HSV. This used to occur in healthcare workers, especially dentists, after contact with an infected patient's saliva before the routine use of gloves. The lesions can be pustular and mistaken for bacterial infection. The Zank smear is a scraping of the base of a herpetic ulcer and can be used to detect multinucleated giant cells for the detection of HSV as well as VZV. This test is no longer routinely used but may show up on the USMLE. Skin biopsy can also be performed to observe for eosinophilic nuclear inclusions, also called Cowdry bodies, again for both HSV and VZV. The gold standard is detection of viral DNA by PCR, but other detection methods such as culture and direct fluorescent antibody testing are nearly as good. Treat all HSV infections with acyclovir or one of its analogs, such as valacyclovir. For resistant infections, use phoscarnate. Next, let's talk about the Epstein-Barr virus, also called EBV, or HHV-4, which causes infectious mononucleosis and can lead to cancers of lymphoid organs commonly Burkitt lymphoma and nasopharyngeal cancer. The virus is transmitted by saliva, for example kissing, and infects oropharyngeal epithelium. It can then invade the bloodstream, where it infects B cells through the C3D complement receptor. EBV then causes a transformation in B cells, allowing them to evade normal growth and division controls. The result is a massive proliferation of transformed B cells, that contain latent viral DNA, and occasionally viral replication occurs within the cells until lysis releases them into the bloodstream. The immune response against these transformed B cells leads to the classic clinical picture of mononucleosis, which is lymph node and spleen enlargement, flu-like symptoms, and painful pharyngitis. Patients with active mononucleosis are at risk for splenic rupture, so no contact sports allowed. If you give a patient with EBV amoxicillin thinking that it is strep throat, they will break out into a macular rash. Testing for EBV can be done with the monospot test, which tests for the heterophile antibody and is sensitive but not specific. Confirmation of the diagnosis is by anti-EBV immunoglobulin M or IgM. Atypical CD8 cytotoxic lymphocytes can also be seen on blood smear. See figure 533. If transformed B-cells are not well controlled by the immune system and are allowed to proliferate, they will accrue mutations that can eventually lead to lymphoid cancers. EBV-associated Burkitt lymphoma is common in African children. EBV can also cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma and oral hairy leukoplakia in HIV-infected patients. Nasopharyngeal carcinoma in southern Chinese populations has also been highly associated with EBV infection. Next, let's discuss varicella zoster virus, also called VZV or HHV3, which causes chickenpox as the primary infection and shingles as the reactivation infection. Transmission occurs through exposure to respiratory droplets or by direct contact with a varicella skin lesion. After inoculation, there is a two-week incubation period followed by a viremic phase with fever, malaise, and pharyngitis, followed 24 hours later by the classic, quote, dew drops on rose petals, vesicular rash, that spreads outwards in crops from the trunk and face, see figure 534. The lesions rupture and crust over in one week, at which point the patient is no longer contagious. The entire process is relatively mild in immunocompetent children, whereas adolescents, adults, and immunocompromised patients generally experience more severe disease. For example, pneumonia and encephalitis are common complications in these groups. Since the introduction of the VZV vaccine in 1995, the rate of hospitalization for these patients has declined significantly. Because VZV can cause birth defects such as microcephaly, limb hypoplasia, and skin scarring, pregnant women especially must be protected. If a pregnant woman is exposed to someone with active VZV lesions, either chickenpox or shingles, she should receive VZV immunoglobulin. Do not give pregnant women the varicella vaccine because it is a live vaccine. Pregnancy is a contraindication for live vaccines. VZV remains latent in sensory ganglia and can reactivate in times of stress or immune suppression. The reactivation is called shingles and consists of a painful burning prodrome overlaying a specific dermatome, followed by a vesicular rash. Hint, remember that dermatomes don't cross the midline, so if the rash of shingles doesn't either. For an example, see figure 535. As with HSV, diagnosis of VZV can be accomplished with zinc smear, which shows multinucleated giant cells, skin biopsy, which shows Cowdry bodies direct fluorescence antibody testing, and viral PCR. Treat VZV with high-dose acyclovir to decrease duration and risk of postherpetic neuralgia. Next, let's briefly discuss other herpes viruses. HHV6 causes roseola, or exanthem subitum, consisting to a 3-5-day to five day high fever, followed by a 1-2-day rash on the trunk. The key is that the rash occurs after the fever has resolved. It is transmitted by saliva and occurs mostly in infants. HHV-8 is the cause of Kaposi sarcoma in AIDS patients and is transmitted sexually. For more information, listen to the section on AIDS-related infections. Let's discuss the Hepadnaviruses. They have icosahedral capsids, are enveloped, have a double-stranded circular DNA structure, and the virus of clinical significance within this group is the hepatitis B virus. Hep B, also called orthohepadnavirus, is the only member of the orthohepadnavirus family. The other hepatitis viruses are RNA viruses. The viruses that are called hepatitis viruses are a heterogeneous group, clumped together because they primarily infect the liver. Orthohepadnavirus is extremely contagious, existing in all bodily fluids of an infected person. Transmission occurs by contact with fluids, through sexual encounters, transplacentally, by accidental needle sticks, or by needle sharing. The Hepadna virus uses DNA, not RNA, which you can remember because Hepadna has DNA in the name. Under electron microscopy, one can see the intact virus particle, which is called the Dane particle, which looks like a sphere. One can also see strands of capsid and envelope proteins that have broken off. These are called the Hep B service antigens, see figure 536. Antibodies to the surface antigen confer immunity to the virus. A patient can also develop antibodies to the core antigens, but these are not protective. During active viral replication, another antigen is released called the hep B envelope antigen, which is a marker for active disease. The serology of hepatitis B is complicated but worth memorizing. The hep B surface antigen equals disease, whether chronic, acute, or whether the person is a carrier. The antibody to the hep B surface antigen equals immunity, after either a resolved infection or immunization. Appearance of the antibody to the hep B surface antigen corresponds to the disappearance of the hep B surface antigen. Antibody to the hep B core antigen, IgM, equals new infection. Antibody to the hep B core antigen, IgG, equals old infection. The hep B envelope antigen means high infectivity, and the antibody to the hep B envelope antigen means low infectivity. See Table 5.4 for Patterns of Hep B Serology in Different Stages of Infection. There are several different disease states that can result from hep B infection. Asymptomatic carriers harbor the virus, but never develop antibodies to the hep B surface antigen, and never develop liver damage. Often, these patients are immunocompromised because it's the immune reaction that does most of the liver damage. Chronic persistent hepatitis is a low-grade smoldering hepatitis. Chronic active hepatitis is an acute hepatitis that just doesn't resolve. And finally, fulminant hepatitis is an acute hepatitis with a rapid destruction of the liver. Complications of chronic hep B infection include primary hepatocellular carcinoma and cirrhosis. Diagnosis is by detection of the hep B surface antigen. Antibodies to the hep B core antigen, either IgM or IgG, are markers of the length of disease in both acute and chronic states. The hep B envelope antigen and the antibody to the envelope antigen tell you how infectious the patient is. Again, see Table 5-4. That's it for Part 4 of the Microbiology Chapter. Tune in to Part 5 to continue our discussion of viruses, starting with Parvovirus. Thanks for listening.
0: With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.